Good afternoon to all of you. Uh, it's good to be able to meet in person here and good to have all of you join us on Zoom as well. If you have a Bible, if you keep it open uh, to Matthew chapter 5, that'd be great. And also in your sermon, in your bulletin, there's a sermon handout. Uh, do take it out. It'll give you a steer as to where we're heading this afternoon. And those of you who are on Zoom, uh, that will be shared on the screen as well. If just join us, we've been preaching as a church through the Gospel of Matthew. And a big picture so far in the four chapters that we've covered is that Matthew wants us to know that the Messiah, the King, that God had promised has come. Jesus, the King, has come. And he is ushering in his kingdom. He has called his first disciples. Many more followers are coming to join him in his kingdom. And in chapter 5, with the start of the Sermon on the Mount, the king is making clear what he expects from his followers. Uh, we had the Beatitudes a few weeks ago, and there we saw the character expected of his followers. And two weeks back, we heard about the kind of influence that the king expects his followers to have in the world. His followers are to be the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. And if you've been listening closely last week, you would have heard the king's expectation of the behavior of his followers. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, the king says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So imagine, you are a Jew listening to those words of the king, what would your reaction be? Well, if you were there on that day, it's likely that you would have been shocked. Why? Because that's a very high bar that's set by the king. The scribe and the Pharisees were well known for being super spiritual. They spent all their time studying the scripture. They knew the scripture better than most people. And they've actually made it a point to obey all the laws and the oral traditions that have been passed down over the years. In fact, many of the scribes and Pharisees would not only keep all these commandments and traditions, and they would even go one better. So, for instance, uh, if the law decreed that they should fast once a year, uh, they would fast twice a week. So, I mean, how do you begin to beat that? How can you exceed that? And Jesus is saying to his people that those in his kingdom must display a righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. And you will be thinking if you're sitting there, which planet is he from? And so Jesus starts to explain what he means to his followers. And for the rest of chapter 5 from verses 21 to 28, uh, 48, Jesus gives six examples of what it means for his followers to have a righteousness that exceeds that of scribes and Pharisees. But today we'll only cover three of them. And these examples that Jesus gives will provide a contrast between the kind of righteousness practiced by the scribes and Pharisees and the kind of righteousness that God really wants from his people when he gave them those laws in the Old Testament. You see, over time, the scribes and the Pharisees have added to the Old Testament scriptures certain traditions 
and have considered these traditions to be equal in authority with Scripture itself. Or they would have interpreted what the Old Testament Scripture said in a narrow way, and in a sense, by doing that, limiting the full extent and the full intent of the law. By doing so, the scribes and Pharisees have distorted God's law, and so it's important that we do not pit, as Glenn reminded us last week, Jesus against Moses or the Old Testament, because what Jesus is against is the way that the scribes and Pharisees have added or subtracted from what Moses had written. Jesus is in fact saying here that his is the true exposition of the law against the false exposition of the law by the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus wants to give his followers a deeper and fuller meaning of what the Old Testament scriptures intended. As John Calvin puts it, he, as in Jesus, only restored it, as in the law. So he only restored it to its integrity by maintaining and purifying when obscured by the falsehood and defiled by the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, let's see how he does this by looking at the contrast in the three examples that we have today. Well, first of all, uh, Jesus' first example is taken from verses 21 to 22. Let me read that. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Uh, so Jesus starts off saying, you have heard that it was said to those of old. This is his way of summarizing what was said back then and taught by the scribes and Pharisees. This is how they have interpreted the Old Testament scriptures. And then he contrasts that by saying, but I say to you. And this is Jesus' way of saying, but the right way of interpreting this command is this. You see, Jesus is setting himself up as the authority on how the law should be interpreted. He does not need to refer to someone else, to another rabbi or another teaching to back up his view. Well, you may be asking, so what's wrong with the interpretation of the scribes and Pharisees? Well, they were definitely right when they said, you shall not murder, because that's the sixth commandment uh, in the tenth commandment, ten commandments that God gave Moses um, in Exodus chapter 20. But what they had done was to add to the sixth commandment the words, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. Now, that's not in the sixth commandment. That was actually taken from the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 35, verse 30, which demanded as judgment death for anyone who kills a person. You see, by adding that one line, the scribes and Pharisees narrowed the intent of the sixth commandment to the specific act of murder, of killing. And so if you haven't spilled blood, you haven't murdered someone, you have basically kept the sixth commandment. But Jesus is saying here, that the intent of the Sixth Commandment is a whole lot more than that. The Sixth Commandment is not just about murder. There's fundamentally more at stake here. God is more interested in the motives that prompted the murder, the anger that resulted in that action. God is more interested in the heart. In God's eyes, the person who plans the murder 
but it's perhaps prevented from doing so because you know the gun they go off or they left a knife behind it dropped off on their way uh, there that person is also guilty of breaking the sixth commandment murder is not it's, murder is merely the external manifestation of the anger that is inside us the human courts can only judge the external act but God's court the divine court will judge the internal motives of the heart as well Jesus is saying here that that is the main point about the sixth commandment from the very beginning that's why Jesus tells his followers that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire our anger displeases God our insults displease God because they come from an attitude of contempt for another Jesus wants his followers to abstain from all that but Jesus doesn't stop there he wants his followers when they do get angry when they have done something wrong to someone Jesus wants them to seek reconciliation as he explains in verses 23 and 24 he tells his followers that even if they were at the altar offering up their gift to God he would rather they leave the gift behind and go and first be reconciled remember Jesus is telling his followers this while they were all in Galilee he's telling them that if they're offering a gift at the altar which is in the temple in Jerusalem they should leave it there come back to Galilee 126 kilometers away and be reconciled and that's how much he wants his followers to make right the wrong and be reconciled and in fact for Jesus reconciliation has greater priority in this sense than worship not only that he wants us to make right the wrongs quickly and that's the gist of what verses 25 and 26 is about the settings uh, the setting may be different as about someone on the way to a court but the point is this come to terms quickly with your accuser Jesus wants his followers to know that anger is murder in the heart and must be confronted the sixth commandment is not just about spilling blood it's about God's desire for his people to see that harboring anger in the heart is just as sinful as murder because even if you're not killing someone anger can lead to insults character assassination and so on and God's demands are deeper than the shallow interpretation by the scribes and Pharisees exceeding their righteousness means treating the anger in our hearts just as seriously as well what are you angry at? who are you angry at? how will you work towards letting go of that anger this week? because your anger matters to God moving on the second example that Jesus gives is from the seventh commandment uh, look at verses 27 and 28 you have heard it, it heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart the way the scribes and the Pharisees have interpreted the seventh commandment is that as long as they had not committed adultery they've kept the commandment like the earlier example they have narrowed the scope of the seventh commandment which means that they have in effect narrowed 
the definition of what constitutes sexual immorality. And again, Jesus won't have it. In this second contrast, Jesus tells his hearers that the intent of this seventh commandment, which is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, is not merely about sexual intercourse with someone else's husband or wife. Rather, it's about sexual purity. And in this regard, as was the case in our first contrast, God is more interested in the heart. Sexual purity begins in one's heart, in one's desire. And when our sexual desires are disordered, it becomes lust. And that is what Jesus was alluding to when he mentions lustful intent. And what is lust? Someone define it this way. Lust is craving sexually what God has forbidden. Lust is craving sexually what God has forbidden. Or for those of you who are more mathematically inclined, John Piper has a helpful definition. He says, lust can be explained by this simple equation. Sexual desire minus honor and holiness. Lust is taking something good, i.e. sexual desire, and removing from it honor towards fellow humans and reverence for God. Sexual desire minus honor and holiness. It is lust that causes us to commit adultery. We covet someone else's wife or husband when God has forbidden it. It is lust that causes us to commit fornication. We engage in premarital sex when God makes it clear that sex is meant for men and women who are married to each other. It is lust that causes us to watch pornography. We allow our imagination to be aroused by our eyes, looking at images that God forbid. So Jesus is telling his followers that the seventh commandment is not just about sexual intercourse between two people who are married to someone else. As if, as long as you have not engaged in such an act, you have kept the seventh commandment in providing a deeper and fuller intent of the seventh commandment. Jesus is bringing to the level of desire, to the level of wrongful desire, to lust. But let us be clear, our sexual drive per se is not sinful. Just as God gave us an appetite for food so that we won't forget to feed ourselves, He gave us an appetite for sex, a sexual drive so that men and women in the context of marriage can be joined together and to procreate. But when I have an excessive appetite for food, we call that gluttony. And we know that's not what God wants. In the same way, when our appetite for sex, when our sexual drives are excessive or misplaced, that is sin. But it is not sin when we are attracted to someone or notice that they are attractive, that's admiration. But it is sin when we lust, when we have a deep-seated desire to look, to possess someone when it's rightfully not ours, and that desire consumes us. Our sexual purity is so important that Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3. Let me quote for you. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. End quote. I prefer the NIV version uh, slightly better because the verse says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. You see what Paul's saying here? Not even a hint. 
And that's why Jesus said in verse 29 that the solution for lust is if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, what did Jesus really mean for us to gorge our eye when we look lustfully at a member of the opposite sex? And if the right eye is gorged, wouldn't we still have the left eye to look? And if we gorge out that as well, what about the eye of our imagination in our minds? No, that's not what Jesus intended. And as John Stott puts it, what Jesus is saying here is not mutilation, but mortification. Mortification, or taking up the cross to follow Christ, means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them or put them to death. Mortification, or taking up the cross to follow Christ, means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them or put them to death. John Stott goes on to explain, and I quote, What does this involve in practice? Oh, let me elaborate and so interpret Jesus' teaching. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, the objects that you see, then pluck it out. That is, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and were now blind and so could not see the objects which previously caused you to sin. And again, if your hand or, or food causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your hand, the things you do, or your feet, the places that you visit, then cut them off. That is, don't do it. Don't go. Behave as if you've actually cut off your hands and feet and had flung them away and were now crippled and so could not do the things or visit the places which previously caused you to sin. That's the meaning of mortification. End quote. In other words, our sexual purity is important. And if we are prone to sexual sins, Take drastic actions. Don't settle for halfway measures. And related to this point, I've been previously asked during premarital counselling by couples who are engaged and trying hard to remain sexually pure before marriage. And usually it's the guy who asks the question, how far is too far? How far is too far? And what they're trying to establish is how far can they go physically without sinning technically? How far can it go without displeasing God? I appreciate that question and I understand the intent behind it. But perhaps a better question to ask is rather, how can we please God even more in our relationship? You see how directionally the two questions are opposite to one another? And friends, if lust was a problem in Jesus' time, it's an even more serious problem in our sex-saturated society today. And in this regard, I want to address the issue of pornography. This is a particularly serious problem with the ease of access to the internet today. The internet provides an anonymous, free, convenient way of accessing porn that was not available even just a generation ago. It is a particular problem with men, although the number of women watching porn has been increasing as well. 
And I want to be clear about this. When you watch porn, it is sin. I know many in our culture don't see it as sin. Don't even think it's wrong. But by Jesus' books, you are breaking the seventh commandment. It is sin. It is sin because it demeans sex. It objectifies people. It enslaves its users. Our God has a high view of sex. Please, if you are addicted to porn, please know that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can overcome the addiction. And your church family is here to help you. Please contact one of us, one of pastoral staff if you need help. Moving forward, we go on to the third example, divorce. That would have been a natural follow-up from the previous example on adultery. And here's what he said. Jesus said in verses 31, 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let me try to unpack that for you. The background behind this is that divorce was fairly common among the Jewish people during Jesus' time. Jewish men, and it's usually the men, had been appealing to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, to divorce their wives. If you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses, uh, uh, chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, you have the Black Bible, it's in page uh, 155. If you have the Blue Bible, it's page 184. 155 or 184. And this is what the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4 says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he, had, he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife Ban her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and he shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. Well, as you can see from this passage, this law deals with a very specific set of circumstances. It's about Moses addressing the issue of ex-husbands remarrying their ex-wives. The focus here is not even on divorce. Moses is not even saying here that the wife should be divorced if indecency was found in her. And it isn't even clear what is considered an appropriate reason for divorce because what does indecency in the wife mean? We're not told. Moses never clarified that. Many commentators think it involves some indecent sexual behavior. While certainly it did not include adultery, 
Why? Because that would have been punishable by death in those days. And this passage, the point is that if the divorced woman remarries and her second husband either divorces her again or he dies, Moses here is saying that the first husband cannot marry her. That is the intent of this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And the reason for such a prohibition, well, actually is to protect the woman. Because first of all, marriages and divorce back then were not performed by officials empowered by some authority. They were largely domestic matters. And all that a husband needed to do if he wanted to divorce his wife was to tell her that he was divorcing her. And so to protect the woman, laws like this in Deuteronomy were introduced to require the man to have some adequate ground for divorce and to provide the woman a certificate of divorce when he divorces her. This certificate would read something like this, quote, let this be from me your writ of divorce, letter of dismissal and deed of liberation that you may marry anyone you want. End quote. You see, without the certificate, it was all verbal. The woman could be accused of adultery if she marries again. And so to divorce a woman, this law requires the man to provide adequate ground for divorce, i.e. he found some indecency in her, and a legal document was to be produced. Otherwise, in those days, a woman could be easily transferred from man to man, and she could be discarded by her husband without good reasons. And so what this law does is that it makes the man think more seriously as well of the implications before divorcing his wife because he cannot take her back. Well, that was Moses' time. Now, that's, and that was the intent of the law in Deuteronomy 24. Now, fast forward to Jesus' time and some things don't change. You see, the man was still wanting their cake and eating it as well. They want to be married to a woman but they also want to be able to divorce her if they didn't like her for some reason. And so you actually have uh, Jewish rabbis who taught that if you want to divorce your wife, just write her a certificate of uh, divorce. And as for the ground of, for divorce, well, it could be as flippant as the fact that the husband didn't like how she looked or that she burnt uh, dinner last night. You see what has happened? These teachers, this Pharisees were taking what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24 and they were focusing only on that bit about the certificate of divorce. But not the part, uh, but not the part that prohibits a husband from marrying his ex-wife, which was the main point of that law that uh, Moses gave. And so Jesus tells them that this is a misreading of what Moses wrote. Easy divorce was certainly not Moses' intent when he wrote those verses in Deuteronomy 24. But more importantly, that's not God's intent as well when he institutionalized marriage. Marriage is a serious matter and it's always intended to be a permanent union between a man and a woman. Jesus wants his followers to take seriously the sanctity and permanence of the marriage union. We see Jesus teaching on this flesh talk more fully in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 9. I'll leave it to you to read that portion later on today, perhaps. At our current pace, 
I suspect we'll get there sometime next year. Um, so wait for that. But it's important to see Jesus' point in our passage today, in verses 31 and 32, which is this. Unless you have good grounds for divorcing your wife, and that would be if she was sexually immoral, your divorce is not valid. And that doesn't change even if you've given her the certificate of divorce. And if it's not valid, she remains your wife in God's eyes. And so when she marries another man, you have made her commit adultery. And not only her, but the man that she's married to, you have also made him commit adultery. You are responsible in God's eyes. So you better think seriously before you divorce your wife, which is the way God always intended to be. Here again, Jesus is providing the true interpretation of the law against the false interpretation by the scribes and Pharisees. Let me conclude. As we look at these three examples that Jesus used to contrast how he interprets the law compared to how the scribes and Pharisees interpreted them, three lessons stand out. The first is that Jesus is more concerned about the spirit of the law than the letter of the law. Well, think of it this way. Someone comes up to you and slaps you on the right cheek. You stand still and choose not to retaliate. And then he slaps you again on the left cheek. And again, you don't retaliate. And then he slaps you for the third time on the right cheek. And for that, what do you do? You give him a big punch on the nose. And your justification? Well, Jesus said, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. But he didn't say anything about the third slap. And that's what it means to lose sight of the spirit of the law. So just because you did not commit murder, just because no blood was shed, it doesn't mean you have kept the law. Because God is more interested in my attitude towards my neighbor. Do I hate them? Am I angry with them? Because if I do, I have already broken the law in God's sight. It's not about whether I've engaged in the physical act of adultery, but rather where do my desires and my imagination go? When I look at a woman, do I last after a woman? God is more interested that we keep the spirit of the law and not just the letter of the law. He's not interested in just the action. God is also interested in the motives, the desires, and the thought behind the action as well. He's ultimately interested in our hearts. So the first lesson is that Jesus is more concerned about the spirit of the law than the letter of the law. The second lesson is this, God wants us to look at the law not only in a negative sense, I must not murder, I must not commit adultery, I must not divorce. Rather, He wants us to look at the law in a positive sense. The law tells us what is wrong so that we can pursue what is right. And that is the positive sense that we are to derive from the law. And it's not enough that I'm not angry with my neighbour, I need to be reconciled and at peace with him as well. It's not about lust, adultery and divorce. It's also about how I'm working to remain faithful in my marriage, to keep my marriage bit pure. By knowing what is wrong, we can know what is the opposite, the right that we have to pursue, which is the will of God for us. 
The third lesson is this. God's laws and command are never meant to be an end in themselves. God's laws and commands are never meant to be an end in themselves. They were always meant to show us the character of the God that we worship. They are meant to help us to know how we can more fully know God, so we can more fully love Him, how we can live our lives that please Him. Because if that is what our heart desires, we will want to do what's right, and we will also love doing it. The sixth commandment tells us that we have a God who puts a high value on the human life. But even more than that, He desires for healthy relationships between people as well. Just as He desires for a healthy and right relationship between Him and the human beings that He has created. The seventh commandment tells us that we have a God who is faithful and keeps His promises. And that's why He wants us to keep our marriage vows as well. He wants us to be faithful to our spouses as He has been faithful to us. He is a God who has a high view of marriage and sex and He wants His people to hold those views as well. That is the character of a God. God's laws point us to the God who gave them so that we can know Him, love Him and obey Him more fully. And so finally, through these examples and contrasts that Jesus gives us, we know the spirit of the law. We know what God's will is for us through the law. We know his character. We know what pleases him. And so we go ahead to do it joyfully. And that is how our righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.